greeting to my amazing friends. Thank you so kindly for making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your day. Those tunes, as always, are courtesy of the lovely Bobby Mackey, and I'm your host, Tessa Mara. Welcome to part three of the movie Curses. I have three amazing movies that we're going to be talking about. I had so much fun doing the other movie curse episodes as I learned so incredibly much from every single one of them, as I often do with many of the topics that I cover. The woman, she lies there in the hospital bed. She looks down at the tummy bump and lovingly massages it. She smiles. This is a dream come true. This is what they wanted, what they craved, a sweet baby. The baby eventually is delivered, but something terribly goes wrong. Rosemary's Baby, the writer Ira Levin, came up with this idea of the script because his wife was actually pregnant at the time, which happened to be June 6, 1966. 666. Even though she would often ask him, he refused to let her read any part of the script. And those who've seen Rosemary's Baby, can you really blame the man? Filming, well, that takes place in New York at the hauntingly beautiful gothic building, the Dakota. People working on the movie said that whenever they were on set at the Dakota, they always felt uncomfortable, that it had a weird feeling to it. It is here that 12 years after the movie was released that John Lennon was murdered by the coward Mark Chapman. The Dakota itself is quite haunted, but that is for a future episode. Side note, Mia Farrow, who, as we know, portrays Rosemary and the former Beatle, John Lennon, well, they were friends. The Manson cult wrote Helter Skelter on the victim's wall, which happens to be a Beatle song. The director, Roman Polanski, wanted his wife Sharon Tate to not only be in the movie, but to portray Rosemary herself. But the producer fought tooth over nail for Mia Farrow to play the leading role, and that is all she wrote. Sharon Tate, however, is in the movie, playing a random person in the background, at the party scene, and nothing more. A year after the movie is released, the murderous Manson cult, they come, and during a very short time, four people will be dead. Five, if you include Sharon Tate's unborn child. Supposedly, a friend overheard Sharon Tate saying, The devil is beautiful. Most people think he's ugly, but he's not. At the time, Roman and Sharon had just started dating. She had just finished her first movie, Eye of the Devil. Many claim that she had become quite obsessed with the occult. The last time Roman Polanski saw his wife, was in July of 1969, and his autobiography depicts a grotesque thought that he had at the time. You will never see her again. Unfortunately, that grotesque thought 
was quite accurate as she was brutally murdered the following month. Many people believed, and some may still believe, that Roman Polanski made Sharon Tate, his gorgeous, ever-so-pregnant wife, as I believe she was eight and a half months, a blood sacrifice for the movie. Eight years after Sharon Tate's murder, Roman rapes a 13-year-old girl. He spends 42 days in jail, then flees the country to avoid further jail time. Well, as this movie was being filmed, Mia Farrow happened to be married to Frank Sinatra. From the very beginning, he thought that she could not play this part. No way in hell. He just could not see her playing this. She had faith in herself, and she tried hard to convince her husband that she could play this part. With Mia being gone so much, the marriage, well, it starts to deteriorate. She tried her hardest. She flew back and forth between work in New York and home in Los Angeles to spend time with Sinatra. But unfortunately, that wasn't enough for old Blue Eyes, and he gave her the ultimatum, basically saying, It's either me or the movie. She continued to work on the movie, and one day, on the set of the Dakota, she was served divorce papers. Ah, oh, Blue Eyes. Later on, another husband would leave, Woody Allen. Scandal was in the air for this one, as he was having an affair with a much younger woman. Really, she was just a girl, who happened to be Mia's adopted daughter. I mean, talk about a double blow. And many of the other people involved in this movie experienced crazy things as well. One of the producers, William Castle, well, he suffers from gallstones. He has surgery, and during this time, he suffered from hallucinations, scenes right out of the movie. He would often shout, Rosemary, for God's sake, drop that knife. Later on, he would say, I was very frightened of Rosemary's baby. And very much like Ira Levin, the writer of the movie and the book, Castle got about, I'd say, 50 letters of hate mail every single day. One would say, Bastard. Believer of witchcraft, or shipper of the shrine of Satanism. My prediction is that you will slowly rot during the long, painful illness which you have brought upon yourself. Like, yikes. Later on, he would have kidney failure. Castle originally wanted to direct the movie, but he ended up being a producer. He does, however, get a cameo. When Rosemary goes to the phone booth to call the doctor... A man with a cigar comes up and he's just kind of waiting there. This leaves many of the viewers to wonder if the man is part of the conspiracy against Rosemary. But really, he is just an innocent man waiting for the telephone. But my friends, that there is Castle. After Rosemary's baby, he never made a Hollywood hit again. Another producer, Robert Evans. Well, his life spiraled out of control. He was convicted for coke possession. He was even connected to an execution-style murder at the Cotton Club, and he had severe health issues. One day, while he was giving a speech to honor the phenomenal Wes Craven, he has a stroke. Days after his stroke, Sinatra dies from a heart attack in one of the adjoining rooms. He watches as they take Sinatra's lifeless body away. This kind of gives him motivation, like, okay, I don't want to end up like old blue eyes. I need to get better. Recover fully. Well, in April 1969, the film's composer, Christophe Commodon, is at a party. They're roughhousing, and things kind of get out of control, and he falls off a cliff in Los Angeles. He suffers a cerebral hemorrhage. He goes into a coma, where he stays for about four months. 
and he eventually dies. This was just weeks after the movie was released. In the movie, Rosemary's dear friend, Hutch, falls into a deep coma and dies. Sidney Blackmare, who plays the coven leader, says one day, while on set, No good will come of this hell's safe business. Now, earlier on, Polanski was quoted saying, Being an agnostic, however, I no more believed in Satan as evil incarnate than I believed in a personal god. The whole idea conflicted with my rational view of the world. Later on, though, he would say, For credibility's sake, I decided there would have to be a loophole. The possibility that Rosemary's supernatural experiences were figments of her imagination. The entire story is seen in her eyes. Could have been a chain of only superficially sinister coincidences, a product of her feverish fantasies. That is why a thread of deliberate ambiguity runs throughout the film. So is Rosemary's baby cursed? As so many bad things have happened to many of the people who worked on that film? Or is it just pure bad luck? The man, he's driving in his Porsche. The wind going through his gorgeous head of hair. He has a smirk on his face as he drives. Good things are happening and he could feel the happiness all around him. Speeding off to better things. Rebel Without a Cause is next up on my list of movie curses. It was released October 27, 1955. James Dean would not live to see his movie be admired by his fans. He dies a little over a month before the release. In fact, every single Rebel Without a Cause lead would die before the age of 45. Dean trades his speedster for the very much faster and sexy Porsche 550. He is to race in the Salinas Road Race the following month. The same month Rebel Without a Cause will be released to the public. He's happy. He's recognized everywhere he goes. He's a heartthrob. The women, they drool over him. James Dean, he's a household name. He's in the movies. He's racing. He's doing everything he absolutely loves to do. And guess what? He's getting paid the big bucks to do it. Life can simply not get any better. On that fateful day, he is on his way to the track. He's accompanied by stunt coordinator Bill Hickman, who's a fellow actor, who was in Steve McQueen's Bullet, international photographer Sanford Roth, who has been featured in Times, Vogue, and so many other magazines and newspapers, and German mechanic from the Porsche factory who maintained Dean Spider, known as Little Bastard, Rolf Wetherich. Hickman and Roth were trailing behind Dean and the mechanic, who recommended that Dean drive the car from Los Angeles to Salinas, a little over a 300-mile drive. This was so he could kind of get used to the car, know her mannerisms, if you will. Dean and the trailing car, well, they're pulled over and ticketed due to speeding. A little over two hours later, James Dean will be dead. Time is running out. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. A college student heading towards them makes a left turn and heads straight towards Dean. He can't stop and he loses control. He tries very hard to avoid a collision, but it's just not possible. Rolf, he's thrown out of the vehicle. James Dean is trapped. He suffers several fatal injuries, including a broken neck. He's cut from the car. His left foot is crushed between the car clutch and the brake pedal. Some have claimed that Dean was not even driving that day, but the mechanic was. 
James Dean, well, he dies at 24 years of age. Rolf, he survives the crash, but he might as well not have. I mean, he was never the same again. He suffers from a double fractured jaw, hip and femur injuries. His left hip is actually required several surgeries throughout the next several months. He has severe psychological problems, dealing with depression. He's suicidal. He drinks a lot. He receives many threatening letters from people who blame him for James Dean's death. His wife even leaves him, blaming him for the death. May 1st, 1967, he stabs his fourth wife while she's sleeping. Then he tries to kill himself. He's arrested and found guilty of attempted manslaughter, and he is sent to a mental asylum. But they didn't throw away the key. He's eventually released from the asylum and continues with his destructive way. One day, he's behind the wheel, while extremely intoxicated, by the way, and he's involved in a car accident. And just like James Dean, he had to be cut out of the vehicle. His injuries, like Dean's, are fatal. Many of James's friends did not trust his new car and begged the man not to buy it. One friend even told him, You drive that car, you'll be dead in a week. And guess what? On the seventh day, I'm not kidding you, James Dean dies. My mind was blown when I found that out. I mean, what an eerie premonition. And on a side note, they got gas at the same gas station that the Manson family went to after the murders they committed at the Tate house, cleaning themselves from their victim's blood. While on the topic of James Dean, before we go into the other list of victims, his car, the little bastard, has been believed to be cursed on its very own. And I just want to talk a little bit about that right now. So, after Dean's fatal accident, Little Bastard is declared a total loss and spends a certain amount of time in the salvage yard where Southern California racer William Eskrich buys the car for parts. The engine is put into a Lotus 9 while suspension parts are put into Troy Lee McHenry's Porsche. Eleven months after James Dean dies, both men, William and Troy, participate in the same race. The very first lap at the 1956 Pomona race, McHenry's Porsche hits the only tree on the track, and he dies on the scene. Eskrich, he's severely injured as well when his car locks up, rolls over while he's in the process of turning. It's interesting that both of these men have parts of James Dean's little bastard in their cars. One dies, the other severely hurt. The remaining parts of the spider, which includes four wheels and a mangled body, are sold to George Barris, who sold two of the wheels and loaned the body to the Los Angeles chapter of National Safety Council as a traveling display. While transporting Little Bastard, the tires blow at the exact same time, which causes another car accident. The mangled body falls from the display several times, not just a one-time thing, one time it falls off the trailer, breaks the mechanic's leg, while another time it hurts a bystander. The most theory would be when it killed the truck driver, who was hired to transport the car to a road safety expo, his name, George Barkus. In 1960, while in storage, the car mysteriously catches on fire. No one really knows what happened exactly when this fire was started, but it burned the garage that it was being housed in, to the ground. And it is said that the car suffered no damage at all from the fire, like at all. 
at some point, one person buys two tires and puts them on their car and they are run off the road. And there's one bizarre time when two would-be thieves are trying to steal the steering wheel and other items from the little bastard. When the man trying to take the steering wheel, he gets his arm torn open. And the other thief also gets hurt while trying to remove, get this, a blood-stained seat. I guess the lesson here is, don't steal. Little Bastard finds itself at an exhibit at a high school when it falls off the exhibit and breaks a nearby student's hip. It is truly bizarre how many bad things have happened when it comes to Little Bastard. Several deaths, several injuries. While being transported to Miami to Los Angeles, the car, well, it suddenly disappears and it's never seen again. And with its track record, that may just be the best case scenario. But it kind of makes you wonder, where the hell is it? It has to be somewhere. Is it wreaking havoc somewhere? Causing deaths that we just don't even know about? Maybe it's something that we will never know. Next up on the leads to die is Nick Adams, who portrays Chick. In 1961, uh, February night, he had just missed an important dinner with a friend who happened to be a former LAPD and also his lawyer. Well, this friend, he drives to Beverly Hills to check on him. He notices that the car is still in the garage and the lights are on in the house. He knocks. Nick, it's me. Answer the door. He calls for him. No answer. The former police officer is concerned and knows something is just not right. It's very unlike Nick to be a no-show. And if he were to not show up, he damn well would have called, giving an excuse why. He breaks a window and enters the house. He finds Adams upstairs in his bedroom, slumped up against the wall. Nick Adams is dead. At the autopsy, the doctor says, He found enough peraldehyde sedatives and other drugs in his body to cause instant unconsciousness. His death is to believe to be due to a drug overdose. However, many people think that it's much more than that. In fact, they think that he was murdered in cold blood. Next to meet an untimely death is actress Sal Minio. It's February 1976. Sal had just spent the day rehearsing for a play, P.S. Your Cat is Dead, not knowing that later on that evening, he himself will be dead. After a rather successful rehearsal, he heads back to his apartment in West Hollywood. He parks his car when he is suddenly viciously attacked. He's stabbed right in the heart, and the murderer, he flees. Later identified as Lionel Ray Williams, a pizza delivery man who has quite a lengthy criminal record. Well, he was arrested. He was responsible for at least 10 robberies in that area alone. A corrections officer overhears Williams admitting to the murder. And Lionel's own wife even confirms that the night Sal Mino was murdered, her husband Lionel came home with blood all over his shirt. Some believe that Sal was targeted because he was gay, but it seems like Lionel had a lot of issues going on, and yeah, maybe he was targeted for that, but I think that maybe he was just a very unstable person, and that Sal, unfortunately, was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe he knew Sal as an actor, thought he had some money, he had been responsible for several robberies already. Who knows? All we know is that Sal died at the age of 37. 
Oh, yeah. And to jump back to Nick Adams, I forgot to mention that the friend who found his body, remember that former LAPD? Well, him and his wife are in their driveway when they are shot down. Two more senseless murders. Next up, Natalie Wood. At the time, she was just a teenager, and she desperately wanted the part. But director Nicholas Ray was not convinced that Natalie Wood could portray the bad girl Judy. Before she got the part, she went to a party, and, you know, she's drinking, hanging out with her friends. The night ends with her being involved in a car accident, leaving her all bloodied and bruised. When Ray hears what happened, he went to check on her at the hospital. And he overheard a doctor say, Goddamn juvenile delinquent. At this point, Natalie is ecstatic because this is what she had been wanting to prove for months to the hard-headed director, Nicholas Ray. When she sees him, she excitedly cries, Did you hear what he called me, Nick? He called me a goddamn juvenile delinquent. Now can I get the part? Natalie Wood got the part and she nailed it. Years later, though, she would find herself on a boat trip with her husband, actor Robert Wagner, a friend, fellow actor Christopher Walken, and the boat captain, Dennis Davern. Her husband Wagner claims that he went to bed that night and she had stayed up. This is one of life's mysteries where nobody really knows what truly happened that night. Some believe it was a freak accident while others scream murder. It is known that Natalie was deathly afraid of water her entire life. This was no secret. She wasn't one of those kids that would go swimming in the local watering hole or, you know, go diving into her pool and, you know, go to the beach and have fun. No, she was terrified of water and she would stay away from it. Something horrible happened that night, which resulted in Natalie suddenly being in the water in Catalina Island and her body being found one mile away from the boat. The coroner, he did find bruises on her body, saying that it was possible there was a fight before she had drowned. The case, well, that's reopened in late 2011, when the captain of the boat said he lied before. That the truth was that Natalie and Robert had a bad fight, an argument. If we are to believe what Davern is saying, Robert had a fight with Natalie. He believed that she was flirting with Christopher Walken. This made Robert furious. Dennis also claims that Robert would not let him use the boat's searchlights, something he needed to use to search the waters for Natalie. He was also not allowed to call for authorities right away like he wanted to. So, I don't know, I must ask, why the change of heart? I mean, that's great that he finally came forward, but why did it take him 30 years to do so? To me, that is just insane. Was he threatened? Was he terrified? What exactly was it? 30 years has gone by. Any evidence is now gone. <laughs> when Natalie was just a child, her mother Marie went to go see a psychic who told her that Natalie, who was actually born as Natasha, would live a happy life. She would be rich and famous and loved, but she would die a horrible death. The cause of death? Drowning. Maybe is that why Natalie was so terrified of the water? I don't even know if she knew about this, but, you know, that is pretty spine-tingling. 
last but certainly not least is the omen. During the filming of this movie, many things would happen. The omen originally came from Robert Munger, an advertising executive and born-again Christian. He pitched his idea to Hollywood and caught the attention of Hollywood producer Harvey Bernhard. Well, once he got what he wanted and somebody wanted to make this into a movie, old Bob changes his mind and starts to warn Bernhard, saying, This is only going to bring pain and suffering into the lives of the people who make this movie. Why the change of heart? Was he having premonitions, dreams, or perhaps threats? What exactly was the deal? He was quoted saying, If the devil's greatest single weapon is to be invisible, and then you're going to do something which is going to take away his invisibility to millions of people, he's not going to want that to happen. Which, okay, yeah, sure, that makes sense, but again, he took the time to come up with this and write it out and pitch it, and he had all the time in the world to think back and go, okay, this isn't the smartest thing. Crumble this paper up, boom, throw it away. But that didn't happen. He pitched it, sold it, and bad things were to come. Many people were excited about this movie, including director Richard Donner. This puts exorcist to shame. It's brilliant shit. All I have to do is not fuck it up. The actor who portrayed Robert Thorne, Gregory Peck, well, he suffers a major family tragedy just two months before filming, when his son, Jonathan, takes his own life. This understandably leaves Peck and his family completely and utterly heartbroken and in shock. Gregory, full of devastation and grief, commits himself to this character, basically channeling his grief. In the movie, his baby is born but does not make it. Real life, his son dies. Speaking of Gregory Peck, picture it. It's October 1975. He's on a plane headed for London, where they are to film parts of the movie. Well, his plane is suddenly struck by lightning. It actually hits the engine, which in result catches on fire, and they have to do an emergency landing. Meanwhile, a couple weeks later, executive producer for the movie, Mace Newfield, he is flying to Los Angeles when his plane is hit by lightning as well. The engine explodes and they almost crash into the Atlantic. Producer Harvey Bernhard had a close call while filming in Rome when a lightning strike almost hit him. The devil was at work and he didn't want that film made. The writer of the film, David Seltzer, was heading to England for filming, and two days after Peck's eventful trip, where his plane is struck by lightning as well. So this is three planes in a row. That's like insane. Now, I know things like this happen from time to time for such a short period and so many people working on the movie seeing and experiencing the same thing. And lightning, of all things, right? So it seems like any time they're traveling to film for the movie, lightning would find them. And believe you me, the lightning is just the very beginning of it. So much more will happen to the people as there's a price to pay to make the movie The Omen. And the people, well, they must pay up. So I want to talk about some scenes in the movie that those who have seen The Omen know what I'm talking about. 
So there's a scene where Gregory, he's attacked by Rottweilers in the graveyard. While filming this, something goes terribly wrong. Trainers, they are on set. The stuntman is in place. The dogs, they attack on command. They bite through the protective layer of padding. And even though the professional trainers demand the dogs to stop, the canines keep ravenously attacking. One dog even manages to bite his neck, just barely missing his jugular. Though injured, the stuntman survives this brutal and ever so vicious attack. There's a scene of the movie where actress Lee Remick, who plays Catherine Thorne, takes her son Damien, who is played by child actor Harvey Spencer Stevens, to the zoo. The baboons, well, they start to go crazy. What we, the viewer, don't know is that they actually put a live baboon in the back of the car. This was to trigger the baboons outside. Now, what you just heard is just the tiniest of sounds, but the scene is very intense. I mean, they're jumping, throwing themselves against the car, screaming at the people inside, and it's very scary. The look of shock and screams coming from Lee Remick are indeed very real, as she is terrified that there's a wild monkey in the car with her and sweet, <coughs> okay, demonic child. The following day after filming that particular scene, the animal handler that was there for that scene is mauled and killed by a tiger. Producer Bernhardt says this at a news conference. The trainer was killed by a tiger. It grabbed him by the head and killed him instantly. And here's another plain story for you. This one unfortunately differentiates itself from the others. They charter a plane for the filming crew, but for reasons unknown, changed their mind at the very last minute. The original plane would crash shortly after takeoff, killing every single person on board. And in a heartbreaking, bizarre twist, the plane plummets to the ground, landing on a vehicle which contained the pilot's entire family. One night, the executive producer, Mace Peck, and others involved with the movie, had planned to have dinner at a nearby restaurant. Well, before they could even approach the building, it suffers a mysterious explosion, and it's completely destroyed. And another time, Mace and his wife check out of a hotel that they were staying in, and they leave earlier than they expected in London, shortly after it's leveled by an explosion. It was blown up by the Irish Liberation Army. Mind-blowing. Fox eventually hears about all the events that are surrounding the Omen and decide to play around with it, making a tagline for the movie campaign. You have been warned. If something frightening happens to you today, think about it. It may be the Omen. The producer Harvey starts wearing a cross while on set, and while basically doing anything that has to do with the movie. Makes you kind of wonder if he's regretting not listening to the old Bob's warning if they go through making this movie. Probably one of the most eeriest things that have happened was when special effects artist John Richardson is involved in a horrific car accident. This is after filming of the movie was complete. He was actually working on another movie. It was Friday the 13th, 
Richardson and his traveling companion, Liz Moore. Now, some accounts say Liz was his wife, while others say it was his girlfriend. But either way, they're together. They are in Holland. They're enjoying a gorgeous day, taking a ride. No one else is on the road. Well, suddenly a car just comes out of nowhere, hits them head on. The horrible crash leaves John unconscious. And even worse, Liz Moore? Well, she's decapitated believed to have happened from a flying wheel. John Richardson actually helped with the movie's decapitation scene. As John comes to, the first thing he sees is a sign which reads, Omen, 66.6 kilometers. Now it's not spelled O-M-E-N, it actually has an extra M, O-M-M-E-N. This is referring to a nearby Dutch town. Omen is actually a very beautiful place where many tourists come every single year to visit. But, I mean, how eerie that he works on the decapitation scene for the movie The Omen about the satanic evil child, and then this happens. What well, happens, it's real life now, you know, decapitation, Omen, 666. I got chills when I heard about this. So... Let's talk about Damien for a second. During the audition for who would become Damien, the young boys were basically told to misbehave. They had to have a kid who knew how to have a major fit. This is every kid's dream come true. What? I can misbehave and I'll be rewarded for it? Bring it on. When Harvey Spencer Stevens came to the audition, the producer Harvey remembers it very clearly. Dick says, when I yell action, you attack me and don't stop until I yell cut. Dick yells action and the guy hit him right in the balls. Well, this got the little young gentleman that was Harvey Spencer Stevens, the job. Take him. Dye his hair black. He's the Antichrist. Meanwhile, when the remake was being made, people really thought that is not a good idea. Do you need a recaption of what happened several years back? Don't do it. The curse will continue. The actor who portrayed Damien's father loses his brother suddenly. His brother is out enjoying a night out with some friends, playing some poker. He gets three sixes in his hand, and he drops dead. And there is a part where Lev Schreiber, where the film spontaneously bursts into flames at the film processing lab. So, next time you watch a movie, just remember that it may be plagued with death freak accidents, and so much more. So grab a bowl of popcorn, find a seat on the old couch, click the play button, and see where the night takes you. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Yes! Listen to the others, you guys. They're equally awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to cry, my friends. You can binge listen right now by hitting up any of those phantom really awesome podcast platforms such as Spotify, Owl Tell, Player FM, Overcast, CastBox, wherever you may roam to listen to your other spookily fantastic podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcasts lurking in the background. Big shout out to my voiceover family. Mario, Thomas James, Rick, Colin, Bryce, Cole. Dana Shoulders, Adrian Romero, Joey Bravo, and Justin Dean. As always, it's super appreciated. You guys do an amazing job. This week's special city shoutouts go to 
Valley Park, Missouri, Mount Holly, New Jersey, Cubita, Brazil, Tempe, Arizona, and Lake Villa, Illinois. Thank you so much, you guys, for taking time out of your day to listen. Every single one of you, incredibly appreciated. You're awesome. Do you have an idea for an episode? Want to be a voiceover for a future episode? Throw an email my way at paraprowl at gmail.com, and we will see you next week.